You're listening to Cape Watch Radio with Pastor Dave Schenk of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through the book of Acts. Call me sinners, poor, needy, and weak. He stands to save you now for pity and love, mighty power. He's willing and able. He calls you now. When you're going through a trial, when you're in the midst of a spiritual confrontation and you have a calmness about you and you have a peace about you, it becomes attractive to those around you because they want to know, why are you at peace when your world is falling apart? Why do you exhibit this peace when everything around you is falling completely apart and then you get the opportunity to say, it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because I have a relationship with Him because He is my peace. Are you a peaceful person? Today, Pastor Day will remind us that as Christians, we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. As we face difficulties and trials, others should see peace in us that comes from knowing we serve a sovereign God. This allows us to witness about Jesus, the author of our peace. Well, let's join Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 19, verse 23, with part three of our message entitled, the riot in Ephesus. This is going well. Well, let's add a dash of confusion. Our next C word. Let's add a dash of confusion. This turns ugly fast. Look at verses 29 and skip to 32. In verse 29, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. In verse 32, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. So confusion becomes our next C word. Confusion reigned. And confusion is always present when you have a riot. And it's an extremely important ingredient. Most of these involved have forgotten why they were even there. They had forgotten why they come together. What was the cause of this confusion? What's the cause of confusion? I'm glad you asked. James, in his epistle, clearly tells us the cause of confusion in James 3.16. He says, For where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. So what causes confusion? Envy and self-seeking are a way to evil. Self! Self! Their motivation was self-driven. It was self-promotion. It was about themselves. They were losing money. Their pocketbooks were being hurt. So they were losing money because the gospel was changing people's hearts and lives. This is a typical mob scene. We also know another thing about confusion from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, we know that confusion is not from God. Confusion is not from God. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. If confusion does not come from God, then it must come from one of the following three, Satan, the flesh, or the world, or maybe all three. That's where confusion comes from. This is a typical mob scene, as I said. Some of them didn't even know what they were doing. They were just following the crowd. Not a wonder the Lord refers to us as sheep, just following each other around. But in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all this chaos, there's a contrast of sorts. And here's the next C word contrast. There's a contrast of sorts in the midst of all this chaos. Look at verses 30 and 31. 
And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some of Paul's companions were seized, and Paul was going to go into the theater and speak to the mob, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Look at the contrast here between Demetrius and his mob and Paul and his companions. Demetrius and the silversmiths were promoting idolatry and immorality, trying to make a living. Paul was declaring the true God and pointing people to the cleansing and purity that only can come through Jesus Christ. There's a contrast there. And Paul exhibits another C word in our study, courage. Paul exhibited his courage. He wanted to go in and talk to the midst of the mob and explain to them the true gospel message. Paul is fearless, and I love this about him. Paul is one fearless dude. He wants to go right into the middle of a mob and talk to them. His companions are like, wait a minute, Paul. You go in there, they'll tear you apart. They'll rip your arm off and beat you with it. They'll tear you from limb to limb. You can't go in there right now. Paul was fearless. Paul didn't see a mob. Paul didn't see an angry mob. What did Paul see? Future converts. He saw people who needed Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to get in there, and he wanted to show them the gospel. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to preach. Paul was the ever-consummate teacher. He's the, he's the one who wants to bring people to Jesus Christ. Paul didn't see this angry mob. He saw past this angry mob, and he says, Thank the Lord. I'm going to go in and talk about Christ. No, please, Paul. Don't go in there. Paul saw what could be in someone. Do you ever look at someone and see what could be with Jesus Christ? It's a neat way to look at them. You don't look at what is. Because usually if they're not saved, what is is kind of not nice. It's kind of like not nice. But if you look at what could be in Christ, it takes on a whole different meaning. It takes on a whole different likeliness. That's how Paul saw people. How did Paul and his disciples display such amazing peace through all this? I suggest to you it's because their hearts were pure and their conscience was clean. Inward purity is the key to power and peace in the midst of spiritual conflict. If you don't have a bad conscience, you can be inwardly pure. Wiersbe says when there are no walls between you and God, you can rest assured that God is standing with you. The mob is all worked up. It's in a frenzy and they're confused. But Paul and his Disciples are at peace. They have the peace of God that passes all understanding. They're fully trusting in the Lord, and they knew that he was going to work all things together for good because they love God, and they were being called according to this purpose. This peace leads to an overwhelming calmness, and hence our last word. This calmness is not only within your, or their heart, but it's visible to others. When you're going through a trial... When you're in the midst of a spiritual confrontation and you have a calmness about you and you have a peace about you, it becomes attractive to those around you because they want to know, why are you at peace when your world is falling apart? Why do you exhibit this peace when everything around you is falling completely apart and then you get the opportunity to say, it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because I have a relationship with him because he is my peace. Paul exhibited this courage and he exhibited this calmness. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, gives a beautiful picture of this peace. He says, you will keep him, you meaning the Lord, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, Lord. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. I love this verse. 
It's, it's a life verse for people. It, it's a powerful verse. It's something that should be on your refrigerator or something you should memorize. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. When you have your mind stayed on the Lord. It's really cool because in Hebrew, the term for peace is shalom. Does anyone know the term for perfect peace? Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. It's a repetition, but it communicates intensity. It communicates this intensity. It's peace, peace. It's an assurance. It's not enough. He follows it with a second or a third. Now, some can have this perfect peace, but it becomes fleeting, and we never seem to be able to keep it. Others can be kept in this peace, but it's not a perfect peace. It's a peace of the wicked and a peace of spiritual sleep and ultimate destruction. But there is a perfect peace that the Lord will keep us in. How do we get that perfect peace? I want it and I want it now. Fine. Stay your mind on Christ. Stay your mind on the Lord. That's the answer. Keep your mind stayed on Him because in that place is perfect peace. It's the source of perfect peace. When we keep our minds stayed on, when we keep our minds settled on, when we keep our minds established on Jesus Christ, on the Lord Himself, we will be kept in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. We will be kept in that. It's interesting here. Because while Paul and all his companions had peace, while Demetrius and all his gang were all reveled up, the Jews didn't have any peace either. They didn't have any peace here because they wanted to distance themselves from Paul. So they say, hey, Alexander, go in there and tell them that we're not with them. Go in there and tell them. So Alexander says, okay, I will. They want to distance themselves, from, distance themselves from Paul. So Alexander goes in, stands before them, and tries to speak, and they go nuts. It says, and they drew Alexander, let's read it, out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people, but they found out that he was a Jew, and all at once the voice they cried for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I love this. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They shouted him down. It was a shouting match. They shouted him down. Poor Alexander. Hey, guys, all I want to tell you is that I'm a Jew. We don't like Paul. Ah, great is Diana. Great is Diana. Sounds like being in the Eagles game for two hours. G-E-J-G-L. Great is Diana. Why did they do this? Well, this infuriated them. Because they knew the Jews didn't like idols. They knew that it was against their command to have idols in there. So what is he doing saying and dissing himself from Paul? The great thing about this is the Lord intervenes and uses a most likely unusual person to diffuse the crowd. He uses the city clerk. The city clerk. Look at verses 35 to 41 as we wind up here. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple guardian for the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple nor blasphemers of your goddess. They said nothing about that. They never blasphemed Diana. They never tried to rob the temple, keep people from going in there. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have another, any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Basically what he was saying is, hey guys, you don't want to bring Rome down on us. 
You don't want to bring Rome in here because of this orderly stuff. We've got to be careful here. But the more interesting point is, he uses Demetrius' tactics. He uses the same rationale that Demetrius used against the crowd. He said, listen, he talks about the greatness of Ephesus. He talks about the greatness of Diana, and he diffuses the crowd. A man named Max Lerner wrote in a book called The Unfinished Country, every mob in its ignorance, blindness, and bewilderment is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance in collective action. In other words, sometimes it's easier to believe the lie than follow the, and follow the crowd. Let me repeat that. Sometimes it's easier to believe the lie and follow the crowd. Do you follow the crowd? Do you follow along with the crowd when the crowd's moving a certain way? Maybe it's even a Christian crowd. Maybe you're not Christian, but you hang with Christians so people will think you are, and you just follow them. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord, brother. You do all the things that Christians do. One of the characteristics of mob mentality is peer pressure. Peer pressure is enormous, and you think it only happens to students in grade school, elementary school, junior high and high school, whatever. No, peer pressure is huge, even in adulthood. Peer pressure is enormous in our lives. I mean, all your friends are doing it. All your friends are going there, and they pressure you to go a certain way, and eventually you give in and go along with the crowd. Sometimes the pressure is to please man more than it is to please God. And you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision as to what you want to do. And this brings me right back to the end of what I'm trying to say here. I'm reminded of another crowd. There's another crowd that we're going to be studying here in the next couple of weeks. Another crowd that was gathered. And in front of them stood the governor of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate. And he had with him two men. One was a guy named Barabbas who was a thief, a murderer. The other one was this guy, this itinerant prophet named Jesus. And he had them both before him. And the whole crowd was there. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. He had done nothing wrong that he could convict him of. But he knew it was Passover. And he knew that he could let one of them go. Now turn to John 18. Look at mob mentality at its best. John 18. We're going to finish up here. In John 18, beginning in verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release you, the king of the Jews? And they all cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, beginning in chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard the saying, he was more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you 
has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Peer pressure. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Peer pressure. When Pilate therefore heard the saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that was called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar! And they delivered him to them. He delivered them to them and they crucified him. Mob violence at its best. Mob violence. Pilate had an extremely difficult decision to make. He knew in his heart what was right. He knew in his heart what he should do, but he was being pressured by a crowd into a decision that he knew was wrong. Peer pressure. It's always a hard position to be in when your heart, you know what you should do. In your heart, you know what is right to do, but there's this pressure rushing you to do the wrong thing. It's a tragedy when a person succumbs to these evil pressures and does what's in violation to their own heart. Sad is always to violate your own conscience and do what your heart knows is wrong. Pilate had the power to crucify Jesus. That's Christ. But he also had the power to release him. Pilate had that power. Pilate knew the right thing to do was to release him. There was no fault. They scourged him and he never cried out and confessed his crime. Pilate knew he was innocent. He asked them a question. What shall I do with Christ and the mob, the crowd? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. A week before, they're standing on the sidelines going, Oh, hail Messiah, Messiah, hail son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna, spreading things in front of them. The same crowd. Guys walking around going, What are you doing? The Messiah's coming. Who the Messiah? Who the Messiah? Oh, hey, he's right involved. Now the same crowd standing outside yelling, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Same crowd. It's a recorded fact. This is not something I'm making up. This is recorded fact that they did this here. And it's not just history now. It's relevant to what you do because each of us have to make the same decision that Pilate made. Each of us in our heart have to make the exact same decision that Pilate made. What do we do with Jesus called the Christ? There you go. You can either believe in him or you cannot believe in him. John says, but as many believed on him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God, even to those who believed upon his name, in John 1.12. Or you don't have to believe in him. You can confess him, or you can deny him. If you confess, confess me before the Father, or before men, Jesus said, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, then I'll also deny you before my Father and in the presence of his angels. So you can receive him or you can reject him. What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? It's your decision and yours alone. I can't make that decision for you. Your spouse cannot make that decision for you. Your mother or your father cannot make that decision for you. It's a decision that only you can make. And you will be called to count that. You will be called on that one day. You will stand before a most righteous and holy God and the question he will ask is, what did you do with my son? Did you follow along with the crowd and reject him? Or did you receive him into your own and declare him Lord and Savior of your life, accepting his sacrifice? That's an interesting paradox here that we'll talk about here at the end. Jesus was the one 
that was in control. <laughs> Jesus was controlling the situation. Just like the Lord was in control of the entire riot at Ephesus. Jesus was controlling the situation. Supposedly, Pilate was the judge and Jesus was the plaintiff. But in reality, Pilate was the plaintiff. Because his decision did not affect Jesus at all. His decision to kill Jesus and have him crucified did not affect Jesus whatsoever. Because Jesus did what he had to do and what he was going to do. What God knew he was going to do. What God had told him he had to do. It didn't affect Jesus one way or the other. What he did, he did. But Pilate's decision did affect Pilate's destiny. It may not have affected Jesus' destiny, but it certainly affected Pilate's destiny, just like the decision you make will not affect Jesus. Because you don't believe of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross doesn't mean it or make it less true. But by not believing, it will surely affect your destiny. It will affect your destiny. And that's the key here. So, though in a sense you must make your judgment, what am I going to do with Christ? Your decision really doesn't affect the destiny of Christ. You may go on saying, I don't believe that two and two is four. Well, that's great if you don't believe two and two and four. It doesn't make it any less true. And if you believe two and two and four, all it does is make you a fool. So, what you do with Jesus Christ doesn't alter his status. Doesn't make him any less God, any less Savior just because you don't believe in him. What you do with Jesus Christ doesn't alter him, but it does alter you. It does alter you and your life. And that life will alter social, social issues. What you do will change your mind about social issues that are now coming towards this nation. What you do with Jesus Christ will alter those issues for you and will give you charge. You're the judge of your own fate. You're the one in charge now. You have control. And I know that's what you've always wanted, was control. Well, now you have it. You are in control of your own destiny, your own fate. You either believe Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, declare Him Lord by accepting His sacrifice on the cross for your sin, becoming born again into a lively hope, hoping in the resurrection from the dead. That's one choice. Or you do not. The choice is always has been and will always be yours to make. There won't be any arguing. We're not going to have anybody strong come around and put your arm behind your back until you confess. The choice is yours. But remember, when you stand before a most holy and righteous God, you will be asked the question, what have you done with my son? Oh, well, he was a great prophet. Um, yeah, he was a pretty good teacher. Um, and he really didn't like the whole commandment thing and stuff like that. It really wasn't, wasn't my bag, you know. But, you know, he was kind of a cool guy. That, my friends, is a wrong answer. So is, well, I went to church. I even tithed. I even served. But what did you do with my son? Think about it. The choice is always yours. Or are you going to follow the mob? And have that mindset and follow the crowd. Well, that's all the time we have for today here on Cape Watch Radio with Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of today's program, we'd like to make available to you a free copy of today's message. We can send you a copy of today's message on audio CD when you email us at info at capewatchradio.com. 
That's info at capewatchradio.com. Or you can listen to or download the message as originally recorded at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Just visit our website at www.capewatchradio.com. If you can't get to your computer to download or place your order, you can always call us at 609-884-5821. We'll be happy to help you. Again, that toll-free number is 609-884-5821. Again, we invite you to visit our website at www.capewatchradio.com, where we provide helpful information about our beliefs, service times, and a convenient map to our church. You can also email us with any questions or comments you might have. And that address again is info at capewatchradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you're in the Irma, New Jersey area and would like to visit us, Calvary Chapel Cape May is located at 596 Seashore Road in Irma, New Jersey. Cape Watch Radio is the radio ministry of Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel Cape May. Please join us next time as we continue our study through the book of Acts. That's next time on Cape Watch Radio.